Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. If Russia chooses this course of escalation, it is going not to be not just an issue for Ukraine. It's not just a European security issue. It's not just a U.S.-Russia issue. It's going to be a global issue. We hope that all of our partners uh, are sending the same message to Moscow, which is choose the path of diplomacy. Because if they take the steps we're worried about they're going to take, it's going to have a huge impact uh, on the global agenda over the next year. The U.S.-China relationship is, is really complex. It's hard to put it on a bumper sticker. If you tried, you'd really need a really long bumper. Do you guys have a strategy for dealing with China, or are you still working on the strategy? I mean, we're well aware we're at one of those moments in history where it's very important for, obviously, the president, the secretary, all of us to be articulating a strategy publicly, and that's going to be something I think folks will be seeing in the coming year. Derek Cholet is the current counselor of the U.S. Department of State. He previously served in jobs in the State Department, Defense Department, and the National Security Council staff. Derek joins us today to talk about the Biden administration's approach to the key national security and foreign policy issues facing the country. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Mr. Counselor, welcome. It is great to have you on the show. I know our listeners are going to be very interested in your insights. And I think this is a terrific time to have a conversation with you because the president is just finishing up his first year in office. And there is, as you know better than anybody, there's a large number of really critical national security issues um, at play at the moment. So welcome to the show. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Michael. As always, it's it's great to be with you. Great to hear your voice and really looking forward to talking today. I do need to let everyone know that before you joined the Biden administration, that you and I worked together at the same consulting firm, Beacon Global Strategies. I just needed to get that out of the way. 
And then you, that's true. And then before that, they're in the Obama administration. Too. Absolutely. 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 So, so, so Derek, I'm going to, I'm going to need to be tougher on you, Derek, because of that. Right. No, I'm, exactly. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just exactly. kidding. So Derek, before we get into kind of the issues that we both want to talk about, I want to start by asking, what is the counselor at the State Department and what does the counselor do? Yeah, it was a great question, Michael. Um, and again, it's great to be with you. And uh, yeah, the counselor job, it, it sounds, it's one of those jobs, and there's many of these kinds of jobs in Washington, it sounds entirely made up, uh, but it's actually got a long history uh, here in the department. The, the positions existed for over a century. And, uh, you know, I am humbled by uh, some of my predecessors in this job uh, going back many, many decades from George Kennan to Walt Rostow to Bob Zellick to Elliot Cohen during the Bush administration. And so uh, the job obvi- obviously is uh, a bit of what one makes of it and what the Secretary of State uh, wants it to be. And in this job, I, I had the good fortune of working uh, with Secretary Blinken, uh, as you did as well during the Obama administration. And of course, I went back uh, with him to the Hill days, Capitol Hill, when we both worked in the Senate together 20 years ago. So I've known him quite some time. And I was part of the State Department transition team uh, a year ago in, in November, December, January uh, last year. And um, so in many ways, my, my day, my, my job here on day one, January 20th of 2021 was sort of a continuation of what I've been doing on the transition. And, you know, the first first year of any administration, Michael, as you know, well, is uh, is quite hectic and uh, dramatic in some ways because you have so many positions unfilled early on. And this year, of course, we had a particular case of that with so many of our senior folks uh, who took a while for them to get Senate confirmation. I was not confirmed by the Senate. I didn't have to go through that process. Uh, so I was here on day one. So I was first few months I was doing, I felt like about five or six different jobs all at the mm. same time. Um, but what I do uh, now is sort of we're in that steady state. I would say a third to half of my time is spent really just dealing with with the inbox that the secretary's dealing with. So you know, part of my role is as kind of as literally as a counselor, kind of alter ego, uh, someone who's just helping him and other senior officials here in the department. Uh, help navigate uh, the department, help think through the issues, help just blocking and tackling every day. Uh, so whether it's Russia, Ukraine or Iran or uh, what's happening in Libya and Bosnia to China, and you name it, and whatever's kind of in the inbox I'm, I'm uh, helping to deal with. But then also there is, since I have the benefit of not having, as they say, line authority, I'm not someone who has hundreds or thousands of people reporting up to me, so I'm not burdened by a lot of administrative tasks, uh, that I can, uh, I have the bandwidth to either by design or by default, uh, dive into certain issues. And so what I mean by that is there are certain issues that will come up and someone's got to deal with them and I can be available to do that. Uh, so that's more the default school. There's Then there's the design, things that, that we decide, I decide, we're talking to the secretary is, is a priority uh, for the United States. It's, it's a situation where having someone close to the secretary here on the seventh floor of the State Department working the, the issue uh, would be helpful. And so over the last year, whether it's Libya or, or Bosnia or the situation uh, right now in Myanmar, those are things where I've tried to put a little extra energy and effort 
uh, uh, here behind those issues because they're priorities for for Secretary Blinken, but they're they're also priorities for for the U.S. government. So, I, I'm, it's a great job. It's it's one that uh, every day is is a little different, and uh, I'm, I'm, I have to be in some cases sometimes uh, uh, a mile wide and an inch deep on issues. And I know you're really familiar with that, Michael, yourself in yeah, terms of yeah, although you were always yeah. a mile wide and a mile deep, <laughs> in my experience, <laughs> but. Um, you know, over time, I expect there'll be some issues that over the course of this coming year will continue on into into uh, from picking up from where I was working in last year. But I fully expect that, you know, over the next few weeks, there'll be things popping on my plate that I wasn't expecting. And that's that's part of the, the nature of the yeah, job. Yeah. OK, that's great, Derek. So so here's what I'd like to do for the rest of the interview is I'd like to focus on part of the interview on sort of key substantive issues. And then the back half of the interview, I'd like to focus on those things that really determine the health of American diplomacy. So I'm going to kind of break it, break it into those two pieces. And I think the place to start, obviously, is, is Russia and Ukraine. And I think, I think all our listeners understand kind of where we are, Putin's demands regarding NATO expansion, particularly with regard to Ukraine, his threat to invade Ukraine if he doesn't get what he wants, our tough response that will never walk away from the concept that countries in Europe get to choose their own security path, our threats regarding tough sanctions if he should invade, the current talks underway in Europe, et cetera. So, you know, people know all that, I think. And with with that as background, let me ask a couple questions. Why do you think Putin chose now to play this game? You know, it's a great question. And I don't have uh, a a satisfactory answer. I mean, this is something I think it's really important to note that this is an entirely unprovoked crisis. I mean, this was, you know, there's no NATO threat to Russia. There's no Ukrainian threat to Russia. That's all preposterous. Um, now, what, so why he chose this moment is, is sort of anyone's guess. Uh, you know, the Russian foreign minister recently gave a, a press conference uh, where he said, well, the Russian officials have just run out of patience on these issues. Because, as you said, these issues are not new issues in right, the sense of, right. uh, you know, the NATO enlargement process is one that has has, has basically been one of the uh, a policy that's been 25 years uh, uh, in process here. And so I don't know why. I mean, it's a, it, whether it's for his own domestic politics, whether it's because he perceives potential weakness on the side of, of the West, uh, whether he just he's just fed up. I, I, I don't know what matters. In some ways, it doesn't matter in the sense of why now. Right. What, what matters the most is what we're doing about it. Yeah. And, yeah. And so how do we think about de-escalating? What's kind of the strategy here? Well, it's a, it's a multi-pronged strategy. One, and you've seen that play out over the last few weeks. Uh, we clearly, uh, the, the foundation of the strategy is is showing that we are at one with our allies and partners in the region, and that's why it was very important for us when the Russians uh, unveiled in this most unusual uh, negotiating tactic of of laying out their bottom lines publicly at the beginning um, uh, several weeks ago. We made clear to them that that whereas there are certainly some issues that that are relevant for a bilateral discussion and we've been having bilateral talks on security issues with the russians uh throughout the past year through the strategic stability dialogue uh, the dialogue that deputy secretary wendy sherman leads um that that there's a lot of issues that the russians raise particularly when it comes to the future of nato the future of ukraine 
that are not going to be discussed in a bilateral U.S.-Russian context. They're going to be discussed alongside our NATO partners at NATO, or it's it's for a broader European discussion, which we said should occur through the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So that's why the over the course of a week, the United States, working with our allies and partners, had these engagements with, with Rus- the Russian side, a bilateral engagement talking about issues, security issues relevant between just the two of us, mainly nuclear weapons, strategic stability issues. And then the NATO discussion at the NATO-Russia Council. So we're at 30 with 30 allies and the Russians and then the OSCE, bringing the 57 member countries of the OSCE together. So that's that's thing one, to, to show that we are in lockstep with our, with our partners. Second is to be very clear to the Russians that there is a there's an alternative path here. There's the path of confrontation and, and escalation, and that's the path that they've been on now for some time. But there's also a diplomatic path where we are willing to engage in talks with them alongside our allies and partners. In good faith, uh, talk to them about some of the concerns they have. We've made very clear that there are issues that are, in our, from our perspective, totally off the table, as you said, on, on uh, NATO enlargement and, and closing NATO's open door on trying to essentially roll back what has happened over the last quarter century in terms of European security, uh, which the Russians are seeking. That's non-negotiable for us. But there are other areas, for example, on transparency on military exercises or uh, deployment of offensive missiles, things of that nature that we'd be willing to, to talk to them about. Uh, but we, it would need to happen on a, a reciprocal uh, basis uh, and have an honest dialogue on this. And what we've been doing is testing whether the Russians are willing to have that dialogue. We've put a lot on the table, us and our allies and partners this, uh, in the past uh, few weeks. They're digesting that. And now we've got to see what the way forward is. But we are then preparing, and this would be, then be the third track, preparing for the worst and, and making clear to the Russians uh, that if they were to choose the course of, of escalation and, and further intervention inside Ukraine, there will be, as Secretary Blinken said, often serious consequences. And, uh, you know, they would regret those actions. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's what we're doing for now. I think from where I sit here, you know, in the State Department, we can't control what's in Putin's head. We can't control what he's going to decide. And our best assessment as of now is he doesn't, he hasn't made up his mind yet. But what we can't control is how we are uh, engaging with our allies and partners. We can control how we're preparing for the worst and how we're engaging in, in, in this diplomacy. So my reading of the media, and you know, I, don't know, I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but my reading of the media is that the talks so far have not gone well. Is that, is that accurate? They have not really been negotiations, I guess. It's been more of a, a um, airing of positions. So... You know, that's it's that's kind of the very not unexpected in sort of contentious circumstances like this. So we had low expectations for this first round of diplomacy, and I can say those expectations were met. <laughs> um, but now we have to test and see what the way forward is. And as I said, we were not thinking that this was going to be solved over the course of one meeting or three meetings uh, in one week, that it's an opening opening a bid here. And now we'll see where this takes us. Let me ask one one more question on on. On Russia, Ukraine, and that's if we have to impose sanctions because the Russians do something stupid here. Russia's not Iran or North Korea, right? When when we impose massive sanctions on those countries, there were not a lot of U.S. companies doing business 
in either North Korea or Iran. But as you know, there's hundreds, if not thousands of US companies doing business in Russia. So how should they be thinking about sanctions? And, you know, and if you're forced by Putin's actions to impose sanctions, will you give them time to unwind their business operations? How should they think about this at this point? Well, we are, as we're doing the the work with within our own government, but then also with our with our allies and partners, because obviously, it's, as you remember well from eight years ago in 2014, the U.S. can do quite a bit on its own, but it's far more effective uh, uh, in terms of the overall message, but also just the impact if you're doing it in conjunction with particularly our European partners uh, in the case of Russia. So as we're working through these issues, we are very mindful of the broader impact. And you're right. I mean, Russia, it's, it's a completely different economy than, than in these other circumstances where we've placed pretty significant sanctions against countries. Uh, and so we're looking at, at how we can best mitigate the, the worst from, from blowing back on us. But then also, uh, you know, obviously we want to do things that don't do undue harm to innocent people. Uh, and so, um, you know, we're, is, you know, there's a very, very delicate set of decisions around taking those actions that's really going to uh, produce a lot of pain. And, and, there, and the Russians are well aware of things that we have not done up to now in response to Russia's behavior, whether it was what they did in Ukraine eight years ago or what they did to interfere in our election in 2016 or the, or the poisoning and uh, assassination, uh, attempted assassination of, of its political enemies at home. We've levied many sanctions against Russia over the last decade or so. Um, and there's, there's, there's potentially more to come if they choose this course of escalation. But one of the messages we've had, not just to, to our European partners, but also to, to partners and allies around the world, as we've been discussing this, this brewing crisis over the last several months, uh, has been that if Russia chooses this course of escalation, it is going not to be not just an issue for Ukraine. It's not just a European security issue. It's not just a U.S.-Russia issue. It's going to be a global issue because it's going to have global impacts. Um, and and so it's in all of our interest, and we hope that all of our partners uh, are sending the same message to Moscow, which is choose the path of diplomacy here. Um, because uh, if they... If they take the steps we're worried about they're going to take, it's going to have a huge impact uh, on the global agenda over the next year. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Derek. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. 
This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with ZBiotics. Go to zbiotics.com slash CBS to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash CBS and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. So, second issue is Iran. Um, again, I think my li- my listeners kind of know the state of play here. A nuclear deal, right? Uh, in 2015, the U.S. pulls out of that deal in 2018 and reimposes bilateral sanctions on Iran. The Iranians, after some time, eventually respond by taking more and more aggressive steps on the nuclear front. We see aggressive covert action by the Israelis to undermine the Iranian program. We see calls in Israel for military action, right? All of this is not good. So a couple of questions. How are the, how are the negotiations going with the Iranians? Path to, the, to a deal seems pretty narrow to me. What's, what's your sense? Yeah, and just, just to add to the, to the list of, of troubling uh, developments, the, the real spike in attacks through Iranian proxies on U.S. US dip- diplomats, U.S. military forces, allies uh, as well. Um, I mean, that's one of the things. Com- coming back into government this year after having been out for a few years, uh, it's, uh, that's something that's noticeably different and more concerning. Um, it's actually worse. It's worse than it's oh, been in a long time. Yeah, it's worse than it's been. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you, can, the, and you can see the trend line really spikes uh, after the the uh, withdrawal out of the JCPOA uh, a few years ago. Well, look, I mean, we have been the last year uh, working through with our again with our European partners um, through these negotiations in Vienna. They they are uh, although we've been willing to negotiate directly with the Iranians. The Iranians have not taken us up on that, so it's been indirect negotiations, so called proximity talks, where we you know. Rob Malley, our special envoy, and his team are, are in Vienna uh, at the same time the Europeans and the Iranians are, and they're all kind of it's a game, it's working through one another uh, to have these negotiations. We had a, a long pause in those talks uh, when the new Iranian government uh, came into office, and so they've restarted just you know, right right around after Thanksgiving and, and continued on uh, here now into the early new year. I could say progress is fitful. Um, you know, it's the talks are still ongoing, which is a good thing, I guess, given some of the concerns we had about the makeup of the new Iranian government. Um, but the problem is, we don't. The clock is ticking on Iran's uh, capabilities, and they're not standing in place. And the, the runway that we have to to have some kind of diplomatic outcome that would be uh, something that would serve our interests is is running short. So that's the worry. Uh, now we're going to still push hard at, at these talks, and um, you know they're continuing on uh, as we speak. But but we're well aware that, that that time's running out, and we've made very clear to the Iranians, and and very importantly, the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese, who are also part of these talks, are also making clear to the Iranians that we expect to see uh, uh, something from them on this. And, uh, you know, this is one area where despite all of the, 
uh, turbulence in the U.S.-Russian relationship over the last year, particularly in the last couple of months, the Russians are still uh, cooperating with us, uh, you know, quite impressively at the in these talks and be, being relatively helpful. So, so we'll see. But it's this has been really tough. I have to say, it's one of the more uh, regretful things that we've inherited is is the situation with Iran and the withdrawal from the JCPOA, which uh, you know it's it's very hard to conjure up how in any way that served our interests given where Iran's nu- nuclear program currently stands and and the fact that that we're left with some pretty at- bad options right now in terms of uh, the way forward. Yeah, I mean, what's what's so stark here for me, Derek, is that no deal. Right seems to mean either war. You know, we haven't taken that option off the table. The president, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. has made that clear. And yep. you always have the possibility of the Israelis going it alone. So, no deal means either war or it seems to me acquiescence to Iran achieving its objective of getting to the threshold capability for a nuclear weapon. So, is there another option in a no deal situation, or are we stuck with one of those? Well, you know. I think that there there can be another option. Clearly, uh, there is, even though Iran is under tremendous economic pressure, uh, you can still dial that up further. And um, that's, you know, the Iranians are keen to to get some economic relief. I mean, they, they I mean, that unquestionably is leverage. It's important to note that this, the Biden administration has not lifted a single sanction on Iran uh, that was in place a year ago before we t- uh, before we took office. So uh, the Iranians want economic relief. I, I think it's one of the reasons they're at the table still uh, and they're willing to talk. Um, so there's we could go the other direction and, and dial that up further. So, but you know we're in a we're, this is definitely a universe of bad choices here, um, and and it, they were never good, but they were they were made sort of worse by, I think, the decision to pull out of JCPOA. Third issue I wanted to ask about is Afghanistan as a safe haven for terrorists. I was struck by General McKinsey's public comments a couple weeks ago about at least him seeing the beginnings of a reconstruction of al-Qaeda and ISIS in Afghanistan. And I'm wondering how it's going putting together a plan, which I assume involves some diplomacy with frontline states in putting together a plan to collect intelligence and then being able to action targets if we have to do that. Yeah. So it's obviously an issue we've been really focused on. Uh, and as you know, well, the ISIS K issue, the question has uh, really, it got worse uh, with the, um, the release of you know, when the Taliban started to take back territory and release a lot of prisoners, including prisoners, you know, prisoners that didn't serve their own interests, prisoners that, that uh, ISIS-K folks who were going after the Taliban. Um, so that, that w- it's what I would say is the most acute threat right now, co- terrorism-wise, coming out of Afghanistan, although we are watching really closely the, the AQ threat. We, prior to the, the withdrawal in, the, in August, but after the president's decision to execute the withdrawal of U.S. forces, the focusing on the so-called over the horizon effort to uh, ensure that we can uh, preserve our, our CT goals there was something we've been we're really focused on t- talking obviously with with the border states and other states where we can um, uh, you know basically continue to ensure that our CT interests are served uh, in terms of placing capabilities there. I can say that um, 
you know, we've, we've had reasonably good, good cooperation along those lines. Um, and this is one area where, you know, when it comes to ISIS-K, it's oddly, this is an area where, where we and the, and the Taliban actually have an alignment of interest because ISIS-K is no friend of the Taliban either. Now, the Taliban's not exactly a partner, <laughs> not, 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 nothing close to it, but, uh, you know, this is one area where they're, they're also right, right. taking action and, and being attacked by uh, ISIS-K. So, you know, this is going to be one of the one of the enduring challenges we face in the coming years as we are watching what's happening in Afghanistan. We're, we're obviously very focused, continue to be very focused on getting uh, anyone out of Afghanistan, the very few remaining Americans, but also those uh, those uh, Afghans who've served with Americans um, who are still in Afghanistan who want to get out. We are working hard to get them out. And then also, of course, uh, thinking and and trying to take some action to address the acute humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, which is only going to be getting worse uh, as the winter sets in. Right. And only at the end of the day feeds, you know, potential extremism, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so Derek, while we're on Afghanistan, I I just want to ask about the chaotic nature of our withdrawal. You know, to me, it did not seem to need to be so chaotic. The administration promised a kind of lessons learned um, study at some point. We haven't seen that yet. I'm just wondering how you think about how we left and what we might have been able to do better. Well, uh, you know, you're right. It was it was a um, you know very very difficult situation. I mean, in some ways, the nature of any any evacuation, uh, as I've sort of thought thought back through history, whether it's you know, Cambodia, Vietnam, 1975, whether it's Libya, 2011, Yemen, 2015, there's, there's sort of an, uh, an element of chaos, uh, kind of it's inherent in any of these situations. Obviously in Afghanistan, no one saw the collapse of the government as rapidly as it came. I mean, uh, General Milley was quoted as saying several months back, you know, there was no piece of intelligence he saw and I can I can share this sentiment that said the government was going to collapse in a matter of a couple of weeks, and so there's there are a lot of lessons to be learned here. We in the State Department are are have launched a, a after action review and, and lessons learned review that's uh, in process now. It's going to some that's going to I think be complete in a couple months or so, and uh, I believe the IC is doing something similar. I think DOD is doing something similar. So. You know, because we and the secretary committed when this was happening that we want to take a close look, not just at what happened during the evacuation itself in that in that two week period, uh, but also take a look back from starting in February 2020 when the agreement was struck with the Taliban by the previous administration to pull out all U.S. forces by May 1st. I mean, that was the that was the policy of record when uh, the Biden administration took office that just in a matter of a few months after, uh, in May of 2021, all U.S. forces were expected to be out of Afghanistan. So what sort of preparations were made in that year, essentially prior to the Biden administration taking office for a full U.S. withdrawal? But I do think it's also just really important to stress here, Michael, that um, as chaotic as, as that moment was, 120,000 people got out of Afghanistan. Uh, and, and that was something that was only possible because U.S. military forces, uh, U.S. diplomats ran to the fire and, and, and worked around the clock in what was, I think, I mean, an unprecedented, uh, uh, extraordinary 
humanitarian operation, uh, something that had never been done before. I mean, it, it just the, the degree of difficulty was it's kind of hard to get your head around it because I mean, here was a country we essentially had withdrawn from everywhere but the airport, and we didn't control anything outside the wire, and we were still able to get 120,000 people out. That you know, in Vietnam when we left, when we were wheels up out of the embassy compound, we left that country. Uh, we didn't stay at the airport for several weeks trying to get people out. Um, and so, you know, there's also a lot of a lot of really heroic stories uh, as, as part of that part of that effort uh, by folks downrange who who uh, were able to get a lot of people back to safety and now, you know, get the, as many of them as possible. Obviously, many here in the United States, but elsewhere around the world where they can build build better lives. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Okay, maybe the the biggest long-term issue here, China, and I could yeah. ask I could ask a thousand yeah. questions, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, we could we could talk for days about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I really want to boil it down to two. And the first one is what is the president, what is the secretary? see as the threat or the challenge in China's rise? You know, in other words, why should kind of the average American citizen, you know, care about this? How does this impact, how does this impact them? Well, I mean, you've seen it, uh, whether it's COVID, whether it's supply chains, whether it's our changing climate, whether it's, you know, our security interests, uh, that China's rise is impacting all of those <laughs> and many, many more areas and not necessarily in positive ways. Uh, uh, and so, you know, China, it, it's, there's, there's nothing inherent about China's rise that means that the, it has to be a, a confrontational relationship with the United States. China, as you know, better than I is choosing to define their rise in ways that are, that are confrontational, Increasingly confrontational with the United States and our partners, and as, as many of the rules of the 21st century are being written, uh, particularly in new technology space, uh, uh, global economy, China is playing in a way where it's going to write the rules. It wants to write the rules in its favor and not ours, and that matters. Uh, now there are going to be issues where we want to uh, work with China, where where we whether it's changing climate, whether obviously global health, we would, I mean, it'd be great if we could work with China on global health. They've been less willing to do so than we have. 
um, which kind of illustrates that the U.S.-China relationship is, is really complex. I mean, it's if you it, it, it's if it's hard to put it on a bumper sticker. If you tried, you'd really need a really long bumper because there are elements of the relationship that are that are confrontational. No question about it. There are elements that are um, competitive and we are more than happy and, and willing and look forward to the competition with China as long as we're all playing by the same rules. And then there's going to be elements of the relationship that are confrontation. So the second question, the second question is, is do you guys have a strategy for dealing with China or are you still working on the strategy? You know, do you have a set of objectives for what you want the U S China relationship to look like in the long term? Do you have a plan for achieving that? And, and the reason I ask is because I haven't seen the president give a speech, right? Or the secretary give a speech and say, here's our strategy. So where are we on that? Yeah. So we, there's been a lot of, of discussion of this over the last year uh, as we've, you know, obviously there are a lot of thought going, went into this during the president's campaign and then before he took office. But, uh, but now that we've been in office and sort of, you know, dealing with the inbox and thinking through what the possibilities are, a lot of thought given to the strategy I think very much the intent is the understanding is because it's important that we need to, we're going to be talking about this more publicly in the coming months. Uh, you know, clearly it's a very important for the American people, for the rest of the world, for our allies, for the Chinese to know, understand what our perspective is and what we, you know, what the kind of, what guardrails we want to put on a relationship and what, what our hopes are and what our concerns are. So we have, we have worked very hard and as you know, Michael, <laughs> well, it's, it's hard to do this often in government where the urgent pushes out the important um, to to have a lot of strategic discussions internally at, at, at the highest levels at all about what we are trying to achieve, what's realistic, what tools we have, uh, what could we do differently? What have we inherited that actually works? And we shouldn't if you know, we shouldn't try to fix it because it's working fine. Um, so I expect that 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 I mean, we're well aware we're at one of those moments in history where it's very important of, for obviously the president, the secretary, all of us to be articulating this strategy publicly. And, and I, I, that's going to be something I think folks will be seeing in the coming year. Derek, let me, let me shift to um, those enablers that I talked about of U.S. power and U.S. diplomacy. And, and maybe the first one is, is allies. Obviously you guys, you guys inherited a situation where, our allies were not particularly happy with the United States. Where do we stand with those relationships? Yeah, I was going to be, you know, be flip about. Like many, in some cases, there was nowhere to go but up. Um, so, uh, look, I think this is, and obviously, as as here at the State Department and, and for, for Secretary Blinken, this has been perhaps the most important project of the year, of the first year, which is rebuilding that foundation of allies and partners. And for many reasons, we inherited a situation where some of those most important partnerships were, were under a great degree of stress. And so we tried to both shore up and revitalize and energize those existing partnerships, whether it's NATO or with the EU or with our, our Asian uh, treaty allies, but also try to breathe uh, uh, new life and, and create new mechanisms like uh, in the Indo-Pacific, for example, with the, the so-called Asian Quad. India, uh, the United States, uh, and Australia and Japan, where it had been in existence before, but we elevated it up to to leaders level, and now it's you know it's it's something where sort of 
perhaps some of our partners were a little tentative about it early on. Now it's it's a thing. I mean, it's it's going to we're having another summit this year, and it's it's a it's a very useful mechanism. And others want in, right? Uh, similarly, trying to to re-energize our engagements with ASEAN. This is something I've been involved with a, a bit, where uh, you know, for a lot of reasons there was a sense that the U.S. had been been uh, a little absent from Southeast Asia for uh, the previous few years, and that's I think was a huge missed opportunity. It's also a place where China's playing obviously pretty pretty seriously, and so trying to uh, elevate our game there. And the president in the coming months uh, will hopefully be able to host ASEAN leaders here in Washington. I say hopefully we'll host because we because of COVID, some of our in-person right. interactions have been right, limited right, recently. Right. But um, I mean, it seems to us that's our edge. Our, our, our allies and partners uh, is, is what makes American leadership so unique. When we think of Russia and China, for example, uh, they don't have a lot of friends. Uh, they have countries that maybe work with them because obviously you know, in China's case, it's a big economy. It's a lot that, you know, they can, they can coerce a lot of folks. Uh, they can't be ignored in some cases, but there's not, I mean, who are their allies, right? Who are the, who are the, who are the countries that have, have, have signed up to come to their defense uh, if they were to come under attack? And I mean, so that's something that we can't take for granted. Uh, it's not a protection racket. It's not, it's not a, it's not something where it's just purely transactional. It's it's these alliances are really what make the United States unique, and and also when it comes to solving any problems out there, whether it's dealing with threats, whether it's seizing opportunities, we're not going to be able to do all this in the 21st century without strong allies and partners. Yeah. And so let me, let, let me share that's the with foundation you. Here. Yeah, so I agree with you 100. And 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 I think you know couple of missteps here and there, you know, the Australian submarine deal, et cetera, but you guys have done a really good job, right? Here's the question I get from the, the former officials I used to work with in our allied countries. What they say to me is, you know, the Biden administration is back, right? We feel, we feel we're, we're in a much better situation, but Michael, can you guarantee me that we won't be back in the same mess in 2024 or 2028? I don't have an answer to that question. What would you say to them? You know, look, I think, uh, you know, in some ways we have to, <laughs> we, we have to deal with what, what we have in the here and the now in, in the present moment. And I can't, you know, sort of like the serenity prayer. Like I can't think too far. I can't think of things that are beyond my control, like three or four years from now, eight years from now. What, yeah. I can, what we can do is control what we're doing today. And, and what I can say that the, the positive thing out there, that despite all of the turmoil that the United States has been through and all the drama of some of our alliance relationships over the last few years, there's still a tremendous demand signal for U.S. leadership and, and a respect for U.S. leadership. I could confess, I, I was, have been a little surprised over the last year, expecting that we'd hear more of, as, we've gone, as I've gone around the world talking to, talking to allies and partners of, you know, well, you guys, we're done with you. We're moving on. No, there's like, it's not just, it's thank goodness, you know, you're back, meaning that the U.S. is back um, and trying to be a problem solver. Not that we agree on everything all the time and, and, and or that we're going to make everyone happy all the time, but that we're trying to be constructive and trying to lead. Uh, and there's a demand for that. And I, we just have to, we go through this with the faith that if we do that day to day in, day out, that you know, that's the best proof point we can make that these things have value for the future and we can avoid 
a return uh, to the turmoil that some of these alliance relationships uh, suffered through. That's the best we can do. And yeah. Yeah. and there's really no alternative. I mean, the only alternative is not to try. And so right. this is, right. and so, and I think I have, you, you don't kind of do diplomacy if you don't have hope that things can work. If you don't think anything's going to work, you shouldn't go into You go to the intelligence diplomacy. community. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, right. So, so um yeah, so that's so that's kind of the way we the way we approach it. And as I said, the fact that people want us to be at the table, want us not just to be at the table, but to be driving an agenda, looking to the U.S. for answers. I, I tell my, you know, friends from Nebraska where I grew up, say, you know, that's a unique thing. That's a that I mean, not not a lot of countries have that have that that kind of stature where people are caring about. You know, they want us there. So yeah. So the other, um, the other kind of uh, piece of of diplomacy here is the health of the department. Yes. Yeah. You know, this is my view. You, you know, you don't have to say this, but it's my view that the State Department has been underfunded for a very, very long time. Yeah. And you know, post nine eleven, the Defense Department, the intelligence community get tons of new money, and the State Department gets nothing. Yeah. And then, and then during during the last four years, you had a you had probably more than any other agency in the national security community, you had an outflow of people. So where are you guys today in sort of rebuilding the department? Sure. Well, I'm glad you asked that because this has been a big priority for, for secretary Blinken and and all of us. And you're right. I mean, the department going back 30 years, the the state department uh, has, has often gotten, the short end of the stick when it comes to, to funding relative to DOD or to the intelligence community, it, it got, it's gotten worse over the last decade or so in particular the last four or five years. Um, and then, and then for, again, a variety of reasons uh, under the, in the previous, previous administration, this department was under a lot of stress and uh, the workforce was beleaguered and, uh, and layer then on top of that COVID, which we all suffered through in an, in and out of government in or out of government, but, uh, you know, doing as you know well uh, from the from the intel community side, DoD doing national security work remotely is very very hard. Uh, and obviously, at the State Department, where there's a lot of travel and, and you know in person interaction is so important, and you either can't do that or you're taking risks doing that. It adds another layer of stress to what was already a stressful situation. Uh, so so uh, one of the things that that Secretary Blinken has has well, I said it's a bit, it's probably large biggest priority is to is to return the health of the department. First of all, ensure that we've got people in in the seats. There have been a, a tremendous amount of vacancies at senior levels. Uh, many many ambassadors still today aren't at, aren't out at post, um, and they they had been held vacant uh, by the previous team. So we obviously worked hard to amend that. We've embarked on a on a on a pretty bold of modernization agenda here at the department. Now we're not we're not that's not a new thing for a secretary to come in and say they want to modernize the department. And so we're not looking to kind of brand it as some big new initiative, but, but there is uh, a lot of uh, work going into making our, ensure that we can recruit and retain uh, the best possible workforce to have a workforce that is, is agile, that's stronger, that's effective, and of course more diverse and really reflects uh, the best of America. So, uh, this is it. You know, this work, like a lot of the work, so much of the work we do around here is, is like, it's like turning an aircraft carrier. You're not going to be able to do it all at once, right? You've got to 
you got to kind of, so this year was about setting the agenda and, and, be, and putting some quick wins on the board and also kind of setting, you know, getting the course, the navigation put in. And then uh, now we got a lot of work to do in the, in the coming years to deliver, deliver onto some of that. And as a, as a first matter, leave this place in better shape than, than we found it, but then also hopefully put some, uh, put some reforms in, in, in the, motion here that over the coming decade will will really play out i can say despite the the a lot of the departures and and the trauma that that the state department went through in previous years there's a lot of talent here i mean there was this was a the folks who who were here you know that i got to know uh during the transition uh were just fantastic and um so yes, a lot of talent left, but a lot of, t- I mean, really, really first, first rate folks who are here working hard every day under, under what would have been difficult conditions. Yeah. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thanks, we really appreciate it. I, I, I think the, the main thing that people will walk away with is, is it's fantastic to know that um, at the most senior levels of our government, there's somebody as thoughtful as you are and as caring about this country as you are. So, so Thanks, Thanks very much for joining us. It means, a lot. it means a lot coming from you. Thanks so much. Take care. That was Derek Chalet. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.